Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here, the Eric Erickson Show, across the nation from Atlanta, where the Braves are up two on the Dodgers. I went to the first game Saturday night. Uh, more on that later. The, the phone number, if you want to be a part of the program, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Uh, let me begin. I was, I was not going to start here, but obviously, given the events of the day, need to start here. Former Secretary of State and Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Colin Powell, has died of COVID complications. Uh, it's perturbing how quickly people wish to seize on this to make an anti-vaccine narrative. It's it's, it's kind of disappointing, actually, to see people uh, grab hold of this and try to claim that uh, somehow the vaccines are, clearly don't work because... Powell had it, and I got to tell you, the media, to a degree, is playing a hold of this. Here's the New York Times headline, Colin Powell, who was the first black national security advisor, first black chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and first black secretary of state in U.S. history, died at 84 of COVID-19. His family says he was fully vaccinated. A dominant presence in American politics, says MSNBC. Former Secretary of State Colin Powell dies from COVID-19 complications at age 84. His family says Powell was fully vaccinated. Breaking from Newsweek. Former U.S. Secretary of State Colin Powell dies from COVID complications, was fully vaccinated. And the Associated Press. Colin Powell's family said in an announcement on social media he had been fully vaccinated. Quote, we have lost a remarkable and loving husband, father, and grandfather, and a great American. The family said, all right, what's going on here? Uh, the, the major media outlets are highlighting he was fully vaccinated, not to spread conspiracy theories, but to placate their readership. They increasingly see as vaccinated progressives and they need to calm the vaccinated progressives who would otherwise say, oh, this beloved hero. He wasn't vaccinated? No, no, they've got to calm them all down and say, no, no, he was fully vaccinated. But they missed it. And in so willfully missing it, they failed to tell the whole story. And by failing to tell the actual story of what happened, they are allowing the anti-vaccine conspiracy theorists out there to spread more anti-vaccine conspiracy theories. Colin Powell was 84 years old, and yes, he was fully vaccinated against COVID but he was battling multiple myeloma, a blood cancer, and had Parkinson's disease. And it is well, well, well documented that vaccines, not just the COVID vaccine, vaccines in general, do not do well against multiple myeloma and the treatment there too, which suppresses the immune system. So now people will be saying, well, wait a second. Didn't he really die of cancer then, not from the complications of of COVID? No, this is, you know, when someone says that someone dies of of AIDS, they don't really die of AIDS. They they die of a a related condition, but it's it's the uh, autoimmune disorder that causes a breakdown of their ability to fight off infection. And so people say they they die of AIDS as opposed to dying of the cold or the flu uh, that that they got the precipitating event. With COVID, 
People say they died of COVID complications because, yes, they have an underlying condition, but it's the COVID situation that actually caused them. The question is, but for this, would they still be alive? And the reality is for with Colin Powell, but for COVID, he would still be alive. He took precautions. He was fully vaccinated, but also he had multiple myeloma and Parkinson's. He's 84 years old. So, yes, it was the underlying complications from COVID that did him in, but they were able to do him in, not because the vaccine failed, but because he had a cancer and the treatment to that cancer made it more difficult for the vaccine to work. And it's not just the COVID vaccine. Any vaccine would have had problems given his immune system and the treatment and battle for cancer or against cancer. So I'm actually, I'm really frustrated here on multiple fronts. Uh, One, there are a bunch of ghouls out there, and I I will call them ghouls, who seized on this and said, Cece, why even get the vaccine? Why get it? It's not going to work. It fails. It killed Colin Powell, fully vaccinated. Pay no attention to the underlying illnesses. But then the media itself helps perpetuate this. Because what the media is doing is engaging in a virtue signal to who they view as their readers. And by saying he's fully vaccinated, to virtue signal to all of their readers that he's one of the good ones, he was responsible. What they're actually doing is they're feeding the conspiracy machine. And I I, I gotta, I, I really, really, really just have to emphasize that the media is a bad actor in all of this. Because of the way they have chosen to tell these stories, They've gone from sensationalism to virtue signaling for who they believe are their preferred set of readers. And they've allowed there to be a vacuum into which the conspiracy theorists have filled the void. And I'm not talking about the anti-vax conspiracy theorists exclusively. There are plenty of COVID conspiracy theorists on the left. How many people have you encountered on the left who insist your toddlers need to wear masks? The science says otherwise. How many people have you seen on the left convinced that it's actually COVID that's responsible for all of what ails us right now? It's it's not the government policies there too. It's the virus itself. And see, you, you got to pe- focus on that part because COVID is not to blame for supply shortages. It's the government policies related there too that are to blame for the supply shortages. COVID is not causing a situation where there are a mass number of job openings and no one coming to apply for the jobs. It's the government policies related there too, paying people to stay unemployed, scaring people to death. All of these things play a role and the media could do a better job of it but would you click on the story would you click on the story if the headline was more mundane would you would you really 
Would you click on the headline if the story were less sensational? Would you really? Some people perhaps would. But in this day and age, everybody is trained more towards clickbait. So there's a there's a Netflix series, The Witcher. Henry Cavill is in it, uh, based on a, a it was a video game series. I, I I saw the first season. It wasn't bad. It wasn't really my thing to a degree, but I I liked it. Okay, I'll go back for the second season. And I saw a headline that it, it, Henry Cavill is out. He's out after the second season. And then you you I actually read the story and I, I fell for it. It was just a clickbait story claiming some injury. You read the story. I read the story twice. There, there's no actual description that he actually is out, that it actually is confirmed, or that he actually is injured. It's just rank speculation, but it was a sensational headline. Maybe he actually is. I don't know, but this particular story, at the end, it, it turned out to be a, if he is, if he is injured, then perhaps he is out. But it was a clickbait story. I, I got it through Google News. I fell for it. Click through. It was a garbage story. But this is this is, it's the click throughs now. So saying that Colin Powell is fully vaccinated, it's a virtue signal to the left. But it's an incitement for conspiracy theories to those who are anti-vaccine, and it allows all sorts of click throughs, all sorts of hate clicks, and that's a real problem. I just the the. The way the media is conducting itself these days on a host of these stories is unfortunate and predictable at the same time. It's unfortunate because we know it sows more doubts and seeds and breeds distrust. And at the same time, it's what we know they want to do to get traffic. There's another story out that's worth focusing on here that Kamala Harris is going to go into churches in Virginia. Vice President Kamala Harris will, via satellite, reach out to 300 congregations in Virginia in order to stir the vote for Terry McAuliffe to get him to go out, to get people to go out and vote for Terry McAuliffe. Now, how is this not partisan campaigning in churches? Republicans are asking this. You know, the the media response is, well, Donald Trump did it. Donald Trump went to David Platt's church in 2020 on stage to be prayed for. So much of of the media response now is, well, Republicans like gerrymandering. Gerrymandering is one of those situations where uh, there's a story out in Illinois. The Democrats are going to to basically carve the state into these bizarrely shaped districts. And their response is, well, Republicans do it. Actually, you know, uh, in the South, prior to 2002 to 2004, the Democrats were in charge. And they did these brutal, crazy, insane gerrymanders that the Republicans responded to. Elbridge Jerry, who it's named for, was from the precursor party of the Democratic Party. And yet the media has covered these things as if it's, well, it's the Republicans doing it. The Democrats are just responding, forgetting that, you know, prior to the Republicans doing it, gerrymandering was still a thing. It was invented by a guy who was a in the predecessor party to the Democratic Party. But history only stops at the moment Democrats and the media get to make Republicans look bad. So they go to 2020 and 2016 and say, oh, look at all the preachers who came out for Donald Trump. You know, in 2016, the Republicans were actually open and transparent about this. Democrats have for years campaigned in churches. 
on Sundays in historically black churches, Democrats have campaigned and rallied people to go vote. They call it Souls to the Polls. It's a Democratic voter operation group. They couch it as, well, it's the historically black congregations. Actually, it's a Democratic voter turnout machine. And Republicans have always been gun-shy about touching it because, oh, it's the historically black churches. It would be racist to stop this. No, you'd actually be stopping Democrats from turning out on Sunday, but you're too scared to stop souls to the polls. It's not souls to the polls. It's Democrats to the polls. And after years of the frustration of Democrats getting away with this, Donald Trump in 2016 said, screw it. We're going to campaign aggressively with churches. In 2020, though, he showed up on stage at David Platt's church in Virginia to be prayed for, but it was unannounced. No one told David Platt it was it was happening. It was uncoordinated with the church. David Platt got heat from members of his congregation for letting the president on stage, blending church and state in a Baptist church. But now the media's like, well, Republicans have been doing it, so of course the Democrats are going to do it. Well, prior to 2016, it wasn't actually a major thing of the Republican Party. It has been an ongoing thing for the Democrats. And yet the media doesn't want to cast it that way. They all want to go, well, the Democrats have to respond to Republicans. Well, why do the Republicans do it? Because the Democrats did it better and first. Souls to the polls is a Democrat voter turnout operation on Sundays, getting people to go vote on Sundays. And the media passes it off as, well, it's historic to the black church and the black community and the ties they have to to voting and the historic civil right. No, that's how you're spinning it, but it's actually just a Democratic voter turnout machine. And Republicans, Georgia Republicans, failed to stop Sunday voting. They were scared of the media blowback on that issue and of what would happen to the black community. They should stop it. Republicans nationwide should stop it. And Kamala Harris going explicitly campaigning in these. You know, if it was a Republican via satellite going in on a Sunday to church congregations, urging them, even Donald Trump did not do that. Even Donald Trump and the Republicans did not go so far to do a coordinated souls to the polls Sunday voter turnout machine. Maybe they should start doing it if the Democrats are going to do it. And, you know, the media is perfectly fine with it. It's just another double standard by the press corps that lets Democrats get away with stuff. Historically, Republicans have not had a habit of doing. And then when they did decide to do it because the Democrats started doing it or were doing it so well, the media is, oh, well, look at what the Republicans are doing. Guess Democrats better do it. They were already doing it. Have you people no sense of history? Y'all, from the moment I sat in my X chair, my body said, this is what a real office chair is supposed to be like. I had... Gosh, I had gone through office chairs, and then I got my X chair, and it is the perfect chair. In fact, my X chair, unlike your chair, can massage my back while I'm sitting doing three hours of talk radio. It can even heat up and cool down depending on my office, which tends to run hot in the summer and cold in the wintertime. And it's all in the LMX massage and temperature regulation exclusively designed for the X chair. And once you feel the customized support, of X-Chair's patented dynamic lumbar DVL, they call it, dynamic variable lumbar. Your back's going to be happy. What I need you to do, you got to go check out the X-Chair because yeah, I bought the, y'all know the expensive brand, and I bought it. It was a good chair. It actually was a really good chair, and X-Chair takes it to the next level. What you need to do is go to xchaireric.com now. That's X, the letter X, chair, E-R-I-C-K.com, or call 844-4X-Chair, 
for $100 off your order. X-Chair has a 30-day guarantee of complete comfort. You can finance your purchase for as little as $30 a month. It's xchaireric, E-R-I-C-K, dot com. It is worth it. Hello there. Welcome. It is Eric Erickson here. Let me tell y'all a story. Story time. This is why I, I don't like the souls to the polls effort and, and, and this, this nonsense that somehow this is all about civil rights. I ran a political campaign once for judge. So years ago, I was just leaving my law practice, ran a, a judicial race, nonpartisan race, and we go into a prominent black church in middle Georgia that is on television. And it's an hour broadcast on television. And at the end of that hour, when the cameras go off, the preacher immediately begins to change. And he says, brothers and sisters, the camera's off, but the show goes on. So we got a judicial race coming up. And we got two men running for the judicial race. And I want to tell you about the two men. One of them's here today. He was my candidate. This is one of these men who's been helping get young black men out of jail. One of them's been locking them up. One of them's been volunteering in the community. One of them worked for Ronald Reagan, rounding up young black men. One of them's been working with the black community. One of them's been working against the black community. And he just goes on and on. An explicit endorsement from the pulpit for my candidate. And then he does something. He says, we're going to pass the offering plate. Y'all going to put money in. You're going to fund this man's campaign. You're going to help him get across the finish line. And they start throwing money in the offering plate, which is against the law. We could take the money. We're like, no, 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 no. You're not going to do this. No. We, we did not take the money. It was deeply uncomfortable. It crossed all of the bounds of what's supposed to happen. Uh, you are allowed as a church to encourage your congregations to participate in the civic process. as part of being a 501c3. You're charitable, you're educational, you're civic, you're, you're allowed to engage and encourage. But I've seen it firsthand, and I know. This isn't about souls to the polls, and it never has been. It is about getting the Democratic voter machine. The, the black church and the Democratic Party are so entangled these days, it's hard to see in many communities where one stops and the other begins. I'm in Georgia. In Georgia, you've got a number of black congregations in the Atlanta area who always come out and, and tote the Democratic Party line. Raphael Warnock, for Pete's sakes, current U.S. senator used his pulpit and sermon time to advocate for the Democratic Party regularly. And they always get a pass because, well, it's historic. It's the black church. You got to let them do it. Civil rights. 
MLK, Dr. Reverend Martin Luther King. But it's not about civil rights. It's the Democratic turnout machine. That's all souls to the polls is. They call it that and brand it civil rights, but it's really about getting Democrats out. I've seen it firsthand, and it's not a good thing. Hi there, it is Eric Erickson here, The Eric Erickson Show. The phone number is 877-973-7425. As I see hate mail flowing in because of the way I ended the last segment, I want to clarify something real quick for you. I said the the souls to the polls thing is a bad thing. It is not a bad thing because churches are organizing, getting people out to go vote. It's a bad thing because it is a Democratic turnout operation. It's not a bad thing because it's just a partisan issue on my part. It's a bad thing because people are abusing the trust of the 501c3 regulations in order to take advantage of it for a political turnout machine that you and I both know if Republicans operated similarly, the IRS would come after them. It breeds a double standard and distrust in the law, which is why we as a people should frown on these efforts to coordinate Democratic politicians going into churches like Kamala Harris is doing. But her doing it is a big indication Democrats are worried about what's going on in Virginia. I don't want to spend a ton of time on that right now, but just the fact that they're having to do this, it's a little bit disconcerting. You know what else is? Guess who's back? Mayor Pete. He's back. Pete Buttigieg has been on leave from his job since August after adopting a child. Paternity leave, they call it, trying to figure out how to breastfeed. No word on how that went. What's your response? As you might imagine, we're bottle feeding and uh, doing it at all hours of the day and night. Uh, and I'm, I'm not going to apologize to Tucker Carlson or anyone else. That, that was him uh, defending his two-month absence. And then he had this to say. What I know for sure, or, or the other holidays, what I know is that the holidays are going to be a lot better this year than they were last year. Uh, because a year ago, millions of Americans were sliding into poverty who now have jobs. And a year ago, a lot of us were uh, gathering with loved ones over a screen. It's going to be different this year because of the president's leadership, because of being able to get more and more Americans vaccinated and make that available free to uh, every American. Uh, and uh, th those are just a couple of the reasons why we can expect a much better holiday season. Now, one more from Mayor Pete. Well, certainly a lot of the challenges that we've ex been experiencing this year will continue into next year. But there are both short-term and long-term steps that we can take to do something about it. Look, uh, part of what's happening isn't just the supply side. It's the demand side. Demand is off the charts. Retail sales are through the roof. And if you think about those images of uh, ships, for example, waiting at anchor on the West Coast, you know, every one of those ships uh, is full of record amounts of goods that Americans are buying uh, because demand is up, because income is up, uh, because the president has successfully guided this economy out of the teeth of a terrifying recession. Okay. Now, there are a couple of things here we got to comment on. Let me reiterate my position on Pete Buttigieg taking paternity leave. Uh, I, I don't have a problem with Pete Buttigieg taking paternity leave. I do have a problem with Pete Buttigieg taking two months of paternity leave. People are saying, well, everybody, can, I, I, I can, can you take, does your office offer two months 
of paternity leave? Particularly in the federal government, you're if you're a soldier on active duty during a crisis, you're not going to get paternity leave. Why does the Secretary of Transportation during a crisis that directly implicates him and his department, why does he get two months of paternity leave? And how does no one notice? You know, the, the issue here is you wanted the job, Pete. You wanted to be Secretary of Transportation. You accepted With that comes some obligations as Secretary of Transportation. In the time of crisis, a supply chain crisis, your hand does kind of have to still be on the wheel of the ship of state. So if you want to stay home and work out of the office from home, do Zoom calls, tend to your child and your obligations at home, and not do public appearances and not give speeches and not go on the Sunday shows, but still have meetings and the like, go for it. I I know plenty of people who do that. I myself, with both of our children, did that. Worked from home, managed meetings as best I could, had a little more spacing in my schedule. I did that for a while. During my wife's surgeries, when she's been ill, I've been able to be home. And I still can do work, but spread around as needed. The important stuff can go to other people, but otherwise... The big stuff comes to me because I'm in charge. He's in charge of the Department of Transportation. That's the problem with Pete. Now, you can defend him all you want. I noticed the people who are defending his ability to take paternity leave want to completely ignore the fact that there is a crisis and he is the Secretary of Transportation. In fact, a number of people say, well, actually, the Deputy Secretary of Transportation is actually the one who has all the skill sets here, so maybe that person should be Secretary of Transportation. Are we then acknowledging that Pete Buttigieg is actually a figurehead? That seems to be what we're actually going for here is that Pete Buttigieg is actually a figurehead and he was dispensable. If he was dispensable, maybe he shouldn't be there. He is, after all, in the chain of succession for the presidency of the United States if something bad happens. And apparently, by all accounts for the people defending him, it's actually not him. It's the deputy secretary who's the competent one. But then there's something else here as well. Buttigieg, if he wants the job, fine. If he wants to take paternity leave, fine. If you want to defend him taking paternity leave, fine. But the fact that he had to do the cavalcade of Sunday shows on Sunday shows the White House was concerned. It is an admission against interest that it wasn't a good look. It's not a good look for the Secretary of Transportation to be gone for two months, and it's really not a good look for the Secretary of Transportation to be gone for two two months and no one to notice. It suggests he really is dispensable, but not only that, it suggests that the White House isn't serious about the crisis. I don't have a problem with him taking paternity leave. He has every right to adopt, regardless of what you may think about gay marriage or adoption by a gay couple. He's got every right to do it. 
providing a child a loving home. He's got every right to do it. And he had every right to take paternity leave. But you know, sometimes just because you can do something doesn't necessarily mean you should do it to the full extent, particularly when there's a crisis. I've known plenty of women who have taken maternity leave but still had to check in with the office because they were in top spots in the company and they couldn't just abandon it. And the reality is for most of us in the real world, while we are able to check out at times, we can't completely unplug. That's really the bottom line thing here. He fully unplugged for two months. I am sure there are people, most likely on college campuses, who will check out for maternity or paternity leave and really, truly check out. I know very few people in the private sector who can completely, totally unplug when they're taking parental leave time. And frankly, I think to some degree it becomes a little bit uh, questioning when you're in a high-valued, important role and you decide that, you know what, I'm going to go spend time with the family for two months and someone else is going to handle my job completely. You're totally, again, you're, you're totally allowed to. But it doesn't necessarily mean that you should. And I think most Americans kind of get this. When you're, you're you're the guy who wanted to be Secretary of Transportation, there's a crisis involving your department that you can step out and no one even notice is not good. And the fact that the White House felt the need to trot you out to defend yourself and talk about the issue after it became a political issue really is an admission that they know it didn't look good and they needed to do something about it. This comes, of course, as the Democrats are trying to figure out what's going on with Virginia. Let, let me just, I, I want to give you the, the plain and simple truth of what I actually think about the Virginia situation. Um, it, it's not hard here. Virginia is a blue state. I mean, Terry McAuliffe is going to win this race. I will actually be surprised if Glenn Youngkin beats Terry McAuliffe because Virginia is not a purple state. It's a blue state. Virginia is a Democratic state. The fact that the Democrats are worried like they are sending Kamala Harrison to the churches, uh, Democratic politicians, the president and others going into campaign for Terry McAuliffe. The teachers union has come out with a new ad for Terry McAuliffe. The fact that they're going in the way they are suggests the Democrats know they have a problem. I still think Terry McAuliffe wins. But if it's close, if it's within five points, the Democrats have serious problems. It should not be a five-point race. Joe Biden, I think, had a 10-point blowout of Trump in, in Virginia in 2020 against uh, against Trump. If If Glenn Youngkin keeps it within five of McAuliffe, that's not good for the Democrats. Uh, the uh, polling averages today put uh, the control of the Virginia legislature as a toss-up all of a sudden. That's not good for the Democrats. I still think this is Terry McAuliffe's to win. But I also think 
We're flying a little blind with polling. I actually want to spend some time talking about polling today. But what you've got to understand is that despite what the polling shows, and the polling, by the way, does show in the polling average that that Terry McAuliffe is ahead, and I think he is, the Democrats are in panic about it. They're operating as if they're about to lose it. Now, listen, I know you will have spinmeisters out there, and some of you, I can feel it in the force. Some of you are as well. Of course, you're always going to try to make it close because you want maximum turnout, but he's really, he's fine. He's got it in the bag. That's your spin. I've run campaigns. I've been the campaign manager and the political consultant. You don't operate like they're operating, all hands on deck, battle cries, crisis, attack, 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 attack at the very end, the way he's doing it, unless you think you might be about to lose. There are rhythms and patterns to campaigns and their behavior. And these are the patterns and rhythms of a campaign that's worried about losing. And Terry McAuliffe should not be worried about losing in Virginia. He's a previously elected governor. He is a Democrat and has the entire Democratic establishment in his favor, in his quarter, and they're worried, and that's telling. He's still probably going to win. And if he wins, the Democrats are going to breathe such a sigh of relief, they're going to ignore the margin of the win. And it's the margin of the win here, not the win itself, that should also be an issue for the Democrats. And they're probably going to be so happy he won, thinking he could be about to lose, that they're going to pay attention to not, ignore the fact that it's going to be such a close election and it shouldn't be that there are big harbingers for doom for the Democrats. And, you know, there's also Glenn Youngkin could still win. I, I think McAuliffe wins. But Youngkin, it is a close race, and Youngkin could win. And if Youngkin does win in a blue state, when the Democrats have poured tons of money and they're outspending him on the air, they're outspending him in ads, if Youngkin were to win, that really would spell the next year is going to be a disaster for the Democrats. In fact, if Youngkin wins or it's close, I suspect you're going to see an increasing number of Democrats in Congress announce their retirement next year just to save themselves from the bloodbath. In fact, the teachers unions have decided to pour out uh, a last-minute ad for Terry McAuliffe to try to help him against the finish, over the finish line. This might actually do more harm than good. When it comes to education, Glenn Youngkin's not being straight with us. His plan diverts money away from public schools and gives it to private schools instead. That's why we support Terry McAuliffe. As governor, he listened to parents and teachers and scaled back standardized testing, giving teachers more time to teach and kids more room to learn. It's Terry McAuliffe. Terry McAuliffe. It's Terry McAuliffe we trust to stand up for our kids. The American Federation of Teachers Committee on Political Education sponsored this ad. That last little bit there may be the thing that pushes people towards Yunkin. The, the, there's palpable rage from parents about education in Virginia. And uh, this, this is going to hurt McAuliffe in places he should be safe. But is it enough? We'll find out in a couple of weeks. The race is the first Tuesday after the first Monday in November, just like they always are. It's going to be a big one, and it's going to have nationwide implications from Florida to Maine to Washington State to Southern California, it's going to be warning sign for Democrats if McAuliffe is either he loses or it's a close race. Hello there, it is Eric Erickson here, y'all. I, I so my buddy Guy Benson very helpfully informs me that I'm not gay. <laughs> yes, I, so I, I went to a antique 
shop this weekend. Yeah, I find them so depressing. I just, it, it's, it's, ah, it's old stuff from dead people or from people who are on the verge of death, downsizing. I just, I, I, I listen, I find antiques very beautiful. I have some antiques. Uh, I, my dad has a, a table that was a wedding gift to him that's gorgeous. And he, he tells me that I got to take it when he dies and I will gladly take it. It's gorgeous. I, I will put it to use. But I just, I, I, stuff like that inherited from my family. Yes, they're, they're gifts from my family. But these are, I mean, it, 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 did, did they not have any loved ones to pass these antiques to? Did they fall on hard times? I mean, what's the, I just, I don't know. I just find it. In, and then it's also someone else's junk. And a lot of it is junk. My goodness, the amount of stuff. It's just junk. I just, I, I, I got no desire for it. It's so depressing to me. I, I just, I, I got to tell you, it's, it's deeply depressing to me to go to a, go to an antique store. Now, my, my daughter, God bless her. She wanted to, um, wanted to buy a unique gift for a friend and wanted to go to the antique store to find it. And I just, I thought that that was very sweet. Um, very, very sweet to be able to, to go do that. But I just, I'm, I'm not a fan y'all. And so I appreciate that that guy tells me that that means I'm not gay. Apparently one of the, the, you know, the new Superman is going to be bisexual and the Babylon Bee says that one of his unique superpowers will be to be able to find the best deal at antique shops. (laughs) I found it funny, but of course some people don't find any of the Babylon Bee's humor. I just, I find the Babylon Bee hysterical. 